We dive fully into the book of Romans this morning. Romans chapter 1, page 1112 in your pew Bible. And if you weren't here last week, I would urge you to get a disc or the podcast of Steve's message. He positioned us perfectly to understand what it is we've, what is the story we've fallen into? We, we come to the book of Romans, and as we journey this year, going from the courtroom to the living room, Paul writes these words to church members in Rome, the capital of the empire, the church from which he hopes to launch the next phase of his ministry. I want you to imagine that we're there. Maybe we're gathered together like this, but more likely we're in small groups clumped around Rome. And this man we've never met writes us a letter. He's heard about us. He cares about us. He wants to visit us. But the thing that catches our attention, the thing that stops us in, his, in our tracks are his words to us when we pick up chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He goes further and he explains that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Not a righteousness that can be achieved through perfect obedience to the law. Not a righteousness that can be achieved when a person's conscience finally develops fully enough. But truly, a righteousness from God. A justified standing before the God of heaven and earth. A righteousness God bestows on a person. Not a righteousness that is achieved, but a righteousness that is received. You and I sit in homes and coffee shops all over Rome, and this message is shocking to us. It's cosmic. We're the Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity trying to come together and make our way in the church. And Paul's message is that righteousness comes by faith. He says this is how it's always been. To the Jew, your attempt to hold to the law perfectly is not the key to your salvation. To the Gentile, trying to let your conscience be your guide is not the key to your salvation. To all of you, the gospel is the key to salvation. Paul quotes in verse 17 the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. This is how it's always been. 
There is a righteousness to be had. It comes from God when a person believes that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sin through his death on the cross. Paul articulates this gospel and he says, I'm not ashamed of that. Let's stop for a minute. Why would Paul tell a bunch of church people, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? He would go on and write two-thirds of the New Testament. He would suffer. He would be thrown in prison. He'd wind up dying for this cause. Why do you suppose he would tell church people, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Could it be that Paul knew the culture of his day? Could it be that he knew that even church people sometimes were ashamed or embarrassed or squeamish? Have you ever been embarrassed or ashamed about anything? I have this memory from high school engraved in my mind. I wasn't the coolest person in the class. That's probably shocking to all of you. Um, but I, I was respected. But there was this one day where I was in the right place at the right time, and coolness came to me. I was at my friend Melissa's house, and we were hanging out in her room, and her parents called up, come out to the driveway. And we go out there and parked, wrapped in a big red ribbon, was the most beautiful AMC pacer I had ever seen in my life. It was Melissa's birthday gift, and it took my breath away. Before I knew it, I was riding around South Point, Ohio in all my coolness, the window down, waving as we went. And Melissa and I knew that in South Point, if you want to be seen, you go to the mini market. So that's exactly where we went. And we pulled her hot, sweet ride into the parking lot. And then this very large, familiar-looking sedan pulled in. And out of it stepped this man wearing a white undershirt, checkered lawn mowing shorts, black socks, and tennis shoes. It was my dad. And before I could stop him, he's waving across the parking lot. Hi, Susie. I was mortified. 17 minutes of coolness lay behind me. Time stopped. I began to slink down in the bucket seat of that car. I didn't want anyone to know I was associated with him. I had my reputation after all. Have you ever felt like that? Embarrassed? Ashamed? Of the gospel? Why would any of us be ashamed of the gospel? Think with me for a minute. I made a decision as a six-year-old to follow Christ. And the next day, after kindergarten, the teacher told my mother, you can't let her come in here trying to evangelize the whole class. <laughs> and then I have a memory from high school. A really popular teacher made fun of kids that went to youth group on Wednesday night. Without realizing it, I was learning that there was a tidal wave of cultural stuff going against this message that was trying to take root in my heart. 
In college, I struggled to connect with Christian fellowship, and it seemed like the feeble attempts that I would make really only served to show me how really unauthentically people could live who claimed that they were Christians, and myself included. But there is this one guy, and he was an authentic follower of Jesus, and everywhere he went, he talked to everyone he knew. I liked him. I even respected him for doing that. But I didn't want to be too closely associated with him. After college, I went to work and I found that day after day, opportunities in the office would arise and somehow I would let most of them slip by without speaking up for Christ. About 12 years ago, I gave a message and sometimes you tend to get input after. And um, after that message, one piece of commentary that was given to me was that was so fluffy and had no content, it was just awful. And another piece of commentary was that was so intense, that was so harsh, I wouldn't want to listen to you again. And I realized that I could be like a ball in a pinball machine, slap Bing, make a bell ring, turn a light on, earn some points. Slap, make a bell ring, turn a light on, earn a few more points. And I could just live my life, bam, bam, bing, bing, bong. Or I could just commit myself to the truth, God's truth. Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? Maybe someone put the kibosh on your zeal. Maybe you've been rejected for the things you believe. Maybe it feels awkward to assert that Jesus Christ is the only way. Maybe you cringe when you bring a friend to church and the preacher brings up hell. Maybe you and I both would confess that we want to do what's right, but we just never quite know how to articulate it. Maybe we go to Portland and there at Pioneer Square somebody is shouting through a megaphone and we agree that the things he is saying are true but we don't want anyone to think we believe what the guy with the megaphone is shouting. Maybe we get embarrassed that the Bible teaches that lying and cheating and homosexuality and gossip and murder and worshiping false gods and marital infidelity and coveting what our neighbor has, that all these things are the same to God and that they're wrong, that lusting in our hearts is the same as committing the act. Maybe we feel a bit awkward about this. Maybe these things bother us so much that we just want to avoid the topic altogether. Except, except for the righteousness that comes to a person from God when they believe. When you and I hesitate or when we refuse to speak up, are we somehow presuming that the person sitting across from us would never accept the truth, even though we did? 
When we fail to speak up, are we thinking in our minds, God must not want this person to hear about his son, Jesus? Did you ever consider Paul? And yes, he boldly claims, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But did you ever consider his life? He goes to a family dinner and sitting all around the table are Jews. And he's got to try to convince them that the Messiah has already come. He goes to his class reunion where he had been voted most likely to persecute. (laughs) And he looks at these guys. His chest is pounding. His palms are sweating. His mouth is getting dry. And he has to tell them, I was wrong. The law will not save us. He spoke up in town squares where the people hadn't even heard of Jesus. He faced church leaders who previously feared for their lives because of him. Imagine Paul's internal processing when for all those years he had blasted and persecuted the church. And now he's a zealous preacher for the cause of Christ. Somehow to all those people, to the church members at Rome, and to you and I, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Who is this guy? What made a difference in his life? The very gospel he defends is the gospel that had changed him. There is no shame in the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Come with me to chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to learn more about who Paul is. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul introduces himself to these church people in Rome as a servant of Christ. He says, I'm handcuffed to Jesus. In the Roman Empire, for anyone to speak up and claim servitude to anyone but the emperor was scandalous. Acts chapter 8, Paul is approving when they stone Stephen to death. Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus with documents that make it legal for him to grab Christians and put them in jail. But wait, Jesus appeared to him. And Paul's encounter with Jesus changed him. Ask anybody who knew him. He was never the same. He met Jesus, and it changed him. He explains in the introduction that the things the prophets said about Jesus are true. The death and resurrection of Jesus proves him to be the Son of God. And in view of these things, Paul has attached himself to Jesus. I want to describe this a bit, and and this won't make perfect sense, but hopefully it will help. 
On May 24, 2006, I became a mom, and then not long after that, I had twins. So in less than 17 months, my husband and I had three children. May 24, 2006 is a day that changed my life. You don't become a mom and nothing change. I learned that I couldn't go to the grocery store unless the cart had at least two seat belts up front. I learned that if my family goes on vacation, I'll be packing for at least four of us. I learned that Sarah and Daniel and Joshua, their schedules impact my schedules. Their dirty laundry impacts my workload. On those rare occasions when I get to go to Costco or Target by myself, there is this routine that seems to always happen. I run into somebody I know, they greet me, they say hello, where are your children? They know that a mom is attached to her children. And evidently, I shouldn't even be at Costco alone. <laughs> Becoming a mom impacted everything about my life. And Paul, by his own description, is explaining that when he met Jesus, it impacted everything about his life. The gospel became real to Paul. He said, I'm attached to Jesus, and what Jesus does, I do. Where Jesus goes, I go. The gospel became real to Paul. Have you allowed the gospel to become real to you? There is no shame in the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Verse 6, <clears throat> Paul continues, And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul states what's already true. You are among those called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are loved by God, called to be his saints. He says, I thank God for you. I want to visit you. Your faith encourages me. I want us to be together that we can encourage each other. Look around the room. Are you allowing the gospel to unite you with the people around you? Are you allowing them to belong to you and you to them? 
In 2003 and 2004, I was privileged to go on two different mission trips with groups of women from our church. And it, it was amazing. We go to the other side of the world, and I think we encouraged missionaries. I think we accomplished some good. But I tell you what, it was amazing for me to realize that there were men and women, boys and girls, on the other side of the planet that I had been forever united with because of the gospel. And then imagine when I came back home and I began to look at you differently. We belong to each other. The second thing we learn about Paul is he has allowed the gospel to powerfully link him together with other believers. There is no shame in the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Paul realized his life had been spared. He was saved from eternal death by Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, he describes this as a gift from God. So nobody can boast. He didn't achieve it. He received it. Paul was given this gift of life and it obligated him to others. He describes that it obligated him to Greeks and non-Greeks. This word non-Greek was barbarians. It was an us and them, but not to Paul. He viewed everyone the same. He said he was obligated to the wise and the foolish, those that are cultured, those that are not so cultured. He was obligated to them all. Paul began to see people like God saw them. And there wasn't a person on the planet that he wasn't eager to share the gospel with. Paul realized that eternity was hanging in the balance for people. And this gospel obligated him to people everywhere. Paul would not, he could not be silent. For all of time, there has only been one way a person can have a right standing before God. Jesus is the way. Paul looked at people and he knew they were dead without Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can quickly become a doubter, hesitant, even lazy. And opportunities present themselves and I shrink away. Do you ever do that? The culture goes in the opposite direction. We risk relationship. We might be accused of being narrow-minded. Who are we to think we know the truth? You and I didn't make this up. This is God's message, and he positions us to share it. Think of a person sitting across from you at dinner or in the next cubicle at work. They need to hear 
the message of the gospel. The message that someone else already shared with you. You and I didn't achieve it. We received it. Why wouldn't the person sitting across from us receive it? I'll confess, I can think of a friend in my life, and I have told her if she ever needs a kidney and I'm a match, I'll give her one. But I realized this past week, I've never point blank sat down with her and expressed the reality of the gospel. What is that saying about me? I'd like to keep her alive and hanging around because she's fun but I would risk letting her go into eternity without Christ? My mom is 79 years old, and don't ever tell her that I told you that. (laughs) Except for a few years of her life, she has lived within 10 miles of where she was born, and this has allowed her to stay in touch with friends from elementary school. One of those friendships always surprised me. There was my mom, the traditional church lady, mother of four kids. Now she's the grandmother of 11. But her friend Mary, I always found her to be more exciting. Mary was single. She had a cabin at the lake. She was an art teacher. She was a much more free spirit. From time to time, when they were teenagers, my mom would try to share Christ with Mary. But Mary had no need for God. Over the decades, off and on, my mom would bring up the Bible or God or Jesus. They remained friends, but Mary remained resistant. Just last year, my mom sensed an increasing urgency in her heart about Mary. She recognized, I'm not getting any younger. My opportunities are probably few. She set a date for dinner, and they went, and mom had committed in her heart to talk with Mary one more time. As the conversation developed during their dinner, my mom was amazed. Mary had been reading her Bible. And my mom brought up Mary's need for Jesus, and Mary finally broke down. She told my mother, I believe everything you say is true for you. I believe you've been saved by grace. But I don't believe that can be true for me. What my mom didn't realize is that for all of those years, there were opposite messages bombarding Mary, and she was believing lies. As my mom pressed, Mary told her some of what had been going on. Mary was believing that if you don't do this, you could never be a Christian. If you do do this or that or whatever, you could never be a Christian. Mom had no idea what God's plan was, but she couldn't be ashamed of the gospel, and one more time, she talked with Mary about it. And that one more time turned out to be the time. Mary gave her life to Christ. She's almost 80 years old. Obviously, most of her earthly life is behind her, but she's a babe in Christ, and eternity is in front of her. Who is the Mary in your life? 
Who is the friend that you'd give a kidney to? Will your attachment to Jesus get the gospel to them? We can think they've already heard it, but what if they just need to hear it that one more time? There is no shame in the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes.